This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 49 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. We're breaking from our usual format a bit this week, but we think you're going to enjoy it. Christopher Alberg is CEO of Recorded Future, and this week he leads a conversation with Stu Solomon, Chief Technology and Strategy Officer at Optiv, a leading provider of end-to-end cybersecurity solutions. It's a wide-ranging conversation, exploring Stu's experience as a longtime cybersecurity professional, including time in the military, along with his thoughts on effective hiring practices, the changes he's seen in the industry, the differences between being a great consumer or producer of Intel, and where he sees things headed in the future. Stay with us. All right, so this is uh, Chris Brawlberg. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Recorded Future. Uh, great to be here, and I'm here today with Stuart Solomon from Optip. Welcome. How are you doing today? Good. I would love to ask you, you know, just as before we dive in, maybe you could give us, uh, you know, your background on yourself. Yeah, absolutely happy to. So uh, I'm currently the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Strategy Officer for Optive, really responsible for looking at the day-to-day solutions and go-to-market across the uh, security space. And for those who aren't familiar with Optive, Optive concentrates on bringing the right products and the right solutions to the uh, the security space, specifically focused on just that. Um, day in and day out, we, we look at things as a security problem that requires a solution versus a technical scenario that creates, I think, more problems when taken in isolation. So that's really what I'm focused on day in and day out. That's great and, and probably a good balance to people like myself who are sort of technical geeks who have a tendency of, of, of always thinking of a te- technical solutions to everything. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, uh, you're obviously one of the long timers in Threat Intel. And if I think about the people listening here, I'm sure we have a lot of sort of experts on Threat Intel here, but we also have some newcomers. So, you know, what's in, in your words, what's Threat Intel all about for you? Uh, so Threat Intel for me really boils down to a single thing, and that's using context to create decision advantage. I think very clearly one of the problems and part of the evolution of Threat Intel was all about how do you marry up good information to something that actually drives action. Mm -hmm. And I I think that ultimately the action is predicated on the context that you're able to derive. So when I think about intelligence, that's really what I think about. That's good. I like that, you know, information advantage there. You know, I like that sort of my background is in in decision support at some level. And I always like to say that the value having knowledge about the where the price of oil is going is more more valuable than a than a barrel of oil. You know, like you know that is clearly. And and uh, and so, why? Yeah, and why those buying decisions are made that's, to drive the pricing? I think that's that's the context that we're often lacking. We look at intelligence as either strategic or tactical, an IOC at the tactical level or some kind of insum at at the strategic level. But what we don't actually think about is all the bits and pieces that have to be analyzed to create the value in the first place. No, that's great, great. No context and context of context and so on. That that's excellent. It's funny because when you say information advantage and so on, you start thinking, you know, then I think of either sort of a business world or I think of a military world. And you know, that leads me to my second question here. You, obviously, you've sort of a great background in the military, but you've also done threat intel 
in a commercial Intel provider, iSight, you've been a solutions provider here, Adoptive, you guys run a MSSP, you know, you bring a lot of, I'm sure I'm missing a few others, uh, you bring a lot of perspectives to this. So as you think about uh, Thread Intel in this perspective, sort of, or, or the multiple perspectives that this brings you, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah, so, you know, in, in every single one of those scenarios, whether it's military intelligence, or it's uh, commercial application of intelligence, or it's actually day-to-day -day security operations and the use of intelligence. In every single scenario, it all boiled down to the same basic concept, which is consumption. Um, being able to take all the disparate data points that are involved in creating that context in and of itself is still meaningless if I didn't have a way on the other side of it to actually apply it and use it. So the, the breakdown always happens at that consumption layer. And therefore, the value is derived on your ability to consume rapidly and effectively back towards that decision advantage concept. Well, that's good. And and so, if we think about that, do you think is is the uh, onus on producing that is that on the producer or the consumer? Is it, do we that's want fair. better producers or do we actually want better consumers? You know, where yeah, I'm no, sure I, it's a little bit of both. But I, I think that's a really, really great question. I, I think about that all the time. And and what I would argue is this. Um, and those who have worked with me over the years have heard me say this many, many times over. But at, at the beginning of it, when, you're, the, when the threat analyst begins to assemble the intelligence product, they should ask themselves that basic question of, and now that I know this, what do I want my, my consumer to do with it? And asking that very simple question, you find that the intelligence product changes meaningfully. Again, whether you're dealing with the IOCs and trying to decide which technical elements do you want to include in a report and with what volume, uh, if you think about how it's going to be consumed, that meaningfully changes the way that you're going to construct the product. If you're building a, a, a more strategic summary, the same thing, ultimately putting that lens of what the consumer will do with it in the analyst's mind as they're creating it is, it, I think the onus is on the, the producer up front. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the flip side, and to your point, the opposite side of it is the receiver has to derive value from it, and they have to understand what that value means. That value oftentimes, and this is an interesting breakdown inside of enterprises, the consumer of the threat intelligence normally isn't the same one who takes action on it. Mm, exactly. they're, they're now going to add an analytical lens to say, why is this meaningful to my environment, and who should I route it to, either automated in an automated fashion or by hand, to be able to allow them to take action. And so that middle layer within the within the receiver of the intelligence has to ask that same question of, now that I know this, what do I do with it? And how will somebody else down the line derive value from it? So I, I think the onus is on both sides of the equation, but it's always predicated on that same central point of consumption. Yeah, no, so, and that, that that's great. And if you think about it like, from a military point of view, where you know people have produced military intel, arguably for for you know I was going to say decades, but thousands of years at some level. If you take it step big step back, but you know just think about the U.S. intelligence community with you know we'll count 17 intel agencies sort of producing stuff up to ultimately up to the president. Uh, what can we learn from that process as we think about intel for corporations? Uh, so that process actually is, I think, indicative of one of the. the great challenges that we have in the commercial intelligence uh, community. And it really boils down to a, a notion of fusion. So the idea that there's a single source of truth and that there's a single source that has the most credibility and the most capability is generally unrealistic. Unrealistic because it's an arms race 
if you will, inside of the um, commercial um, intelligence community in that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much money you spend, you're going to continuously chase after things that you may or may not have full visibility into. And the consumer of that on the enterprise side, the consumer of that on the on the military side, the best analyst from consumption perspective is the one who fuses together multiple sources to create an outcome tailored to their environment. I think that's so, so true. And I think, you know, so as we so go very cyber on this, when people talk about open sources and, you know, whether it's dark web or closed sources or whatever we want to call it, and, and then, you know, more technical data and people getting old, into all these arguments with what's sort of the most meaningful sourcing and, and so on. And I love, love to just say, look, old source, because that's when we, we can start cutting across. And, and that's actually not just true in Intel. It's true in business analysis. It's true for the guy who's finding new oil fields, what have you. It's that's always right. true. When I can look across data and 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 get that context, as you're saying, that that's when I can make a difference. And and you know, related to that, that, that's where the next layer down when you get into the cyber side, because it is a more technical intelligence element, and because there are so many data points and there's so much telemetry associated with creating that context, the next layer down, which I think is really critical, is the normalization layer. So what is that Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. to be able to marry up data elements? Do you have the right data model when you're consuming your technical intelligence to be able to translate that into something useful inside of a SOC? Those kinds of scenarios are really, really important. And, and when you think about the disparate sources that come together in a fusion center, having that normalization layer is really critical. You know, the, the risk is when you and I sort of who, who've been passionate about this for a long time, we talk about it and we can sort of end up being fairly theoretical about it. So the risk is that yeah. somebody's sitting there thinking about like, oh, I thought about getting into that Intel stuff and they're like, oh, man, that seems awfully complicated. You know, so is the risk, it, it, maybe the simple question is, can we simplify this to be meaningful for somebody who does not have the big socks, the big, you know, like the can we can Absolutely. we get into them, too? Absolutely. Um it, and just hearkening back to the beginning of the conversation, if, if you just think about notions of strategic, operational, and tactical intelligence products and usage, uh, take a step back from that and think about what your sourcing plan is to be able to answer your intelligence requirements. If your intelligence requirements are nothing more than I have a question that I need answered and I need data or intelligence mm -hmm. to support that question, you don't need to be technically astute, nor do you have to have a... a a core intelligence background to understand there are business questions and security questions that you need answered. And there are ta tactical, technical, and larger picture strategic opportunities to be able to answer those questions. And your ability to consume is really predicated more on your ability to ask the question than necessarily to know how to answer the question. That's good. That's good. And I think that's what people forget that sometimes like, Forget about having that 25 year history and as an Intel professional, just sit down and write down what you what the sort of questions you're you're trying to answer. And then think about what sort of data you're gonna need to, to support those. And some of them you're gonna find that be really hard. And some of them actually you may with not too much work be able to make a dent in what you want to accomplish. So no, it's good. It's good. Now pivoting a little bit, so we'll hire, and and I'd like to think very proudly. So uh, from people retiring out of military, law enforcement, intelligence community, all of this, and you know I think we love this because you know these people are super uh, competent, they're wonderful, they're smart, they're hardworking, a lot of good good things that comes with that. I'm smiling. Yeah, no, no, but it's good. <laughs> I I like to think so, and we've been very successful with that here at Recorded Future. And uh, I'd like to think so, and and it's fantastic. Now, what do you think is the key learnings here for both? 
both people sort of leaving the government as well as, you know, for them to be able to be successful in more of a commercial world. And I'm sure we have quite a few of those here here on the line today, as well as those, those people hiring, quote unquote, from the government to, to be a good, uh, I don't know, consumer is not the right word, but a good place for people to land. So any learnings from both sides uh, of the equation there? That's a great question, actually. So. I'm going to go in a slightly different direction than I think you might have suspected when mm -hmm. asking the question. But one of the key differences in the military and government intelligence world versus in the commercial world is that the producer of the intelligence doesn't necessarily have contact with the end user. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily have to build the ROI or the return on investment business case around the expense associated with and, and the art and science associated with cultivating sources of information, fusing together to create analytical products. They're, they're very, very siloed by, by necessity um, in that production process of the intelligence. Yeah. When you cross over into the commercial space, it's now a business conversation of how much money is this costing me to create what kind of value? And that chain doesn't have the same siloed scenario associated with it. So being able to cross over from a a business construct on the government side that doesn't take that into account with virtually unlimited funds and resources and support into a commercial space where it's very hard to build that return on investment business case for the intelligence itself becomes an interesting tipping point in the relationship. Mm -hmm. That's one to think about is yeah, that yeah, business yeah. economics yeah, of yeah. the intelligence yeah, relationship yeah. is very different. Now, if you then take that and say, look, what about the, from a people point of view, you know, like when we more from, so, so I like that, you know, because that sort of tells you something about the context of how you're going to work and how you're going to think about people in this, but if more from a people them, themselves, yeah. uh, you know, can you, any angle on that? I, I think the people themselves, it actually starts to go down a slightly different path as well, especially when you think about it from a cybersecurity perspective. The idea that the information has to be and the intelligence product has to be cultivated in such a way that it gets rapidly ingested into day in and day out security operations decision making mm -hmm. means, again, a very different kind of product. So fusing IOCs and IOAs with the analysis into, into an actual product that has all of the above mm -hmm. is not something that you would necessarily see. Um, so again, always thinking about the customer in mind. And, and I think that that takes a different mindset and a different process to be able to think about the technical and the traditional intelligence components yeah. all in a single product curation. Now, so over time, as, as you know, uh, I don't know, put you on the spot, but how long have you done Intel? Uh, long, long time. Long time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good diplomatic answer. A long, long time. Long, long time. So, so, but if you think about like from, and, and specifically sort of in the world, we'll put, you know, some so people say cyber threat Intel, if we, you know, I don't know, it's felt like we were doubling up on words there, but we'll call it that. Cyber threat Intel. So if you think about sort of as long as you've been doing it, what are the key trends you've seen over time here, or evolutions, like what are the key themes that you've seen over that, that time period? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually an interesting question. I see a pendulum swing and it keeps swinging back and forth between how many, what, what creates value in an intelligence product? Is it indicators mm -hmm. or is it analysis? That pendulum keeps swinging back and forth, I think, as hiring cycles on the commercial side mm. are proliferated. But what, what I find most interesting in that scenario, and I think that's driving it, is this, this generally funny notion of automation and orchestration. So if, if we go back 10 years in the security space, 
the notion of IBS is evolving into an IPS, into blocking, mm-hmm. uh, it was seen as almost comical because how, how could we possibly set up a block in line in place without human intervention to be able to make good decisions? Yeah. Yet today, 10 years later, the notion of automation orchestration is the only way that we're going to scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, no, no, you're right. Then now, that goes back and forth. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It goes back and forth. Now, why why is it acceptable? It's acceptable because good threatened intelligence is now fused into the enrichment layer of the, the decision making in the first place. So an automated decision that's predicated on an enriched alert yeah, yeah. is something that you can have higher confidence to be able to automate the action on top of. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that there's more of a reliance on those IOCs now with high fidelity yeah. um, because of the, the rest of the resource constraints in the cybersecurity space. And, and, and if you sort of take that one step forward, where do you think of the, if we now look, say, the next two, three years here, or even just the next year, what, do you, what are the key trends you think we're going to see in Threat Intel from, from, you know, from now and onwards? Is it more of the same? Is there anything radical sort of around the corner? You and I have spoken about getting Threat Intel to be sort of fundamentally embedded into security architectures. I'm super excited about that. That's uh, right. It's like, uh, no, no wonder. But, but, I, <laughs> but I love that idea, though that you know like i was with the CISO on the phone yesterday uh, from you know from a very big company and before i and and i don't know if he really knew what we were going to you know he probably knew that we were going to talk about intel and stuff but he one of the initial things he said was look we have an intel driven security program and I was like, whoa, that's my dream. Know. That's my yeah, dream come true. Know, I, I know. It, it feels like it's taken five years. You know, if you said that five years, years ago, yeah, <laughs> ten years ago, let alone, but even five years ago, people would have been like, you know, what are you talking about? So so that was pretty cool. But but you know, what do you think the next, you know, so one one trend would be hopefully we're gonna see that everywhere. And that's right. I, I like to say, like, who would go to war without Intel ever? You know, that that'd be pretty crazy. So and I think the same thing applies here. But that said, any any other sort of things that you think of from a trend? point of view? No, I, I actually like a lot where you're going. And, and I think the, the final bastion of our industry is the notion of intelligence led. If you look at automation and orchestration scenarios, which are, are so necessary and relevant, they're predicated on trust in the information in the first place. But then you go a step further and you look at some of the, the more popular trends today as jargony as they are with you know AI and, and machine learning. What are they really doing? What, what they're really doing is trying to change the decision and action cycle yeah. based on patterns. Yeah. What is intelligence? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's changing the decision cycle and action cycle based on patterns mm-hmm. and matching together that context with the pattern of behavior and activity. So I, I actually see the concepts as merging into one and the same. You can't automate something. You can't create machine learning without understanding what the outcome needs to look like. And those are predicated on intelligence concepts in the first place. Yeah, no, 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 I think that's great. And I think Unfortunately, most people in intelligence are, are sort of they end up trying to tell us being this ugly stepchild or maybe not so ugly, but but, you know, and I'm the threat intel guy, so I think I can see that. But it's sort of lived a little bit on the side. But is it if, if as it is and if it really will be sort of a core part of the the architecture and of the, the process, to your point, you need to know what outcomes you're driving for. And it goes back to your production and consumption point right again. Doesn't it? I think those two points, again, here being the, a good consumer and a good producer, or even a great consumer and a great producer, uh, sort of, if you take the points from what we've talked here, because I think 
people would like to hear more about that. If you sort of really condense it, like so to be a great uh, consumer of Intel, what, what do you need to think about? And, and I think sort of it's an important one as we five years ago when we sort of I got into this, you know, I think very few people are really sort of uh, in threat Intel at all. You'd find it in the largest banks, as well. again, putting government agencies aside, but you know, okay. you'd find it in the largest of places and even less so fewer people who actually produce their own Intel. Now we have tons of people in the world who are consuming Thread Intel, still very few people actually produce their own Thread Intel. You know, there are a few places, absolutely, right. but not many. But if, but if you just start, if people are gonna you know, produce their own little checklist of three things to get right, if they're gonna be a great consumer of, of Intel, what would you put there? What, oh. What's on the top of, and it doesn't need to be orchestrated, no, no, one, no, two, I, three, I, but what, I, what I should I? That. No, number one, <laughs> I'd say number one, even before you get into anything else, is understand what your consumer base looks like. Who are you trying to convey this to and what is the lens in which they are going to listen to the conveyance? Um, do you have to influence day in and day out for situational awareness your executive leadership team? It's a very different conversation than if you have to provide for technical transmission of information into your SOC to be able to run enrichment across their um, their various learning mechanisms and priority. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so, so, so number one, know your audience yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and create the right level of conversation with the right audience member. Some Intel people who are great at that, and then there's some other Intel people who are just frankly not. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. I remember at our user conference, Errol Weiss talked about how he literally created in his work sort of having people uh, being, you know, both the, the producers of, of uh, Thread Intel, but then other people who are sort of relationship people. That's right. And, and because he, it's hard to find both of those competences in one person. That's right. Exactly. So I, I think that's number one. Then number two is, again, going back to your intelligence requirements, what questions do you actually need answered? And how do you prioritize those questions? And how do you, in turn, number three, build a sourcing plan around them? Uh, so who is your audience and how are they going to consume it? What, uh, what questions, what requirements do you have? And then what data elements and intelligence sources do you need to be able to feed into that to answer those questions? And then just repeat from there. And then just repeat. It's, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's the classic intelligence life cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good. And, and then if you, if you look at then, okay, what's the quality of the results? And in turn, how is it consumed in, a most, in the most efficient manner possible? What are the elements that people find the most value in? And then it becomes a virtuous cycle. Yeah. But it, it, as ridiculous as it sounds, those first three elements get broken down so quickly in the process because we become either too technically elegant or too analytically sexy yeah. to, to really think about the real basics of why you're producing in the first place and for what reasons. So switching gears a little bit. So in this wonderful world of cyber here, uh, you know, because we're doing all this stuff for a reason and, you know, we'd like to make the inner, the, the world better, the internet better, you know, whatever we, way we want to think about it. And, you know, that's interesting because we're obviously doing this against some, some pretty interesting adversaries out there, be it nation states or, or, or uh, criminals or what have you, you know, they're, they, they are quite competent in this, but, you know, is there anything particular in all of this that terrifies you? If you think about the, do we have sort of 10 great years in front of us? Do you think we're going to have some nasty years in front of us? What do you think? Anything particular that stands out? <laughs> well, and what, I, you know, none of us likes to be fear, fear mongers, you know, yeah. like it's easy to be that, oh, the, everything is going to fall apart. But even so, is there anything that stands out for you? Well, the, the first thing that always stands out for me is the knee-jerk reaction of everybody to go after the most advanced threats or the most difficult threats. 
then they forget the basic blocking and tackling inside their programs. Uh, the, the, the biggest gaps are not going to be the ones where sophisticated actors in a very targeted way are, are penetrating. Th those scenarios are going to continue to, to happen. What scares me most is when you take your eye off the ball and just look at those. Mm -hmm. that's well, that's a very um, interesting one. So, so I was sort of, you know, you expect you to say, look, I'm fearful of this new type of, you know, malware XYZ or, but it's taking the eye off the ball from the basic. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Uh, look, at, at the end of the day, it behooves, it behooves actors to do what works and works at scale. Yeah. And most of those are tried and true techniques that are going to involve some some semblance of things like social engineering and of, of basic ways to penetrate into an environment, not necessarily the most sophisticated attacks, but the ones that are going to have the highest rate of success. So that and do that at scale and, and do that at scale. Keep, as we're talking about before, just keep repeating that. Now, who who in this? So so I guess I didn't I wasn't successful at squeezing you for for getting me some on purpose. Some, yeah, no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> if I then instead ask you, so we got the 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 good guys and the bad guys, or the defenders and the attackers. Mm -hmm. Clearly, attackers are are using intel. We know that for sure. Yep. That uh, intel agencies are. They're intel agencies, and and so I think that I've sort of stopped calling it APT. So let's call them intel agencies because in my mind that's what they are, and they use intel. You know, like in every way their form there is defenders, uh, and then we, criminals. You know, there it's a little bit different. You know, they they tend to sometimes use intel, and sometimes maybe not so systematically, but one way or the other they do too, depending on how sophisticated they are and so on. Then we go to the defenders, who are, we're talking more about. They're trying to get into this here, but ultimately. If we assume that we have an attacker and a defender with a well-run program, who has the advantage from Intel? Is it like where where is it most of a I don't know what you call it. A, you know where where is it the most powerful? Well, so I, I mean in, inherently the attacker always has the advantage. Uh, where Intel helps the defender is to be able to start to mitigate or create residual risk within that advantage. So mm -hmm. th thinking of things such as... Take that apart. That's yeah, good. That's so, good. Yeah, yeah. so think about mean time to detect, mean time to respond. Mm -hmm. As tried as they are, um, they are the metrics that, mm -hmm. that our industry looks at. If you can recognize sooner and faster the context around a particular IOC present in your environment, be able to marry that back up against the TTPs that uh, may be indicative of a particular campaign or set of activities associated with some of the technical indicators you've stripped out, you can now then proactively begin to hunt in your environment for other scenarios that may be happening. Look for things like lateral movement, look for things like persistence. Look for and in particular ways that they're associated with this threat actor. In, in, the, in the first like, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. From the context that you've been gathering. So, so now you, exactly. Yeah. So now you've got the context and you've got the technical components associated therein. And now you can start to shrink the potential dwell time, the mean time to detect, mean time to respond, to be able to shift that balance of power not exclusively to you, uh, but at least now you're able to minimize the potential impacts yeah. and or at least recognize what they might be. That's good. Uh, so in that scenario, that's where I think Intel really helps a lot to be able to strike a better balance. Um, it, it speaks to the efficiency and efficacy of your defenders, and it speaks to the context so you understand the business outcome or the disruption that may be created by the attacker scenario in the first place. And what I, what I like what, what you did there was that obviously there is an element of Intel where it's like, you know, I mean, think about what sort of threats I'm going to see over the next year. So I, 
do my investments correctly. Sure, there is an element of Intel, you know, next month, the next week, you know, which is, you know, or somebody was talking to me the other day about uh, CISO was talking about like Friday afternoon, figuring out, are we going to have a good weekend or a bad weekend? I love that scenario. Absolutely. But but then on the, now you, on the other hand, put Intel into like a real sort of near offensive sort of uh, situation where I'm like, you know, you could also just call it IR, I guess, but but you're really sort it's, of in It's the, informed IR and hunting. Yeah, yeah, informed IR. No, that's good. And, okay. and hunting. No, that's good. That, that's right. So, and, and then the the second scenario I would uh, I would think about uh, there is taking that notion and now shifting it back into the way that you assess the efficacy of your controls in the first place. Mm-hmm. So think about threat emulation around particular TTPs or, or actor activity around the things that are most likely to hit your environment in the first place. Um, so go, going out and establishing a threat model that's intelligence informed to be able to determine what you want to look at and test the efficacy of in, in, in your control environment in the first place, mm-hmm. and then actually emulating those environments in your penetration testing, in your red teaming, in your application security scenarios, all predicated on an intelligence informed threat model. Yeah, that's um, good. So the, a, another way to kind of start to think about that that balance a little bit differently. Yeah, that's great. Now, so so as my final question, sort of tying back to this, you know, I wasn't able to squeeze you on what, what's terrifying you the 10 years, next 10 years. But but let me just ask you. So clearly we've seen a lot of crazy stuff here. You know, over the last couple of years here, we saw elections sort of just being, whereas, you know, many of us who've done this for a while, you know, the, the cyber has been this sort of, under a rock sort of thing and and suddenly it's at the top of a presidential election doesn't matter it mean matter any, whether you're sort of on the one side or the other it was just there right in the middle of it and it keeps you know it, it keeps every day you open up the paper and there, it's on the front page of the paper and people are trying to steal a billion dollars and they're hacking this and this and that so that aside though next 10 years does it get better or does it get worse i think it stays the same mm-hmm. um may, maybe it gets worse only in that we're even more interconnected and even more reliant on interconnectivity. But at the, at the end of the day, in, in all those scenarios, the same basic attack patterns are ever present. And it, it goes back to that, that notion of the social engineering again, until we take the last mile mm-hmm. out of the conversation, which is the end user, mm-hmm. they're going to continue to be exploited. We've got to get rid of these damn humans. <laughs> <laughs> Let the robots take over. It's the stupid human at the end that yeah. ultimately gets, uh, gets impacted in some form or fashion. Our thanks to Stuart Solomon from Optiv for joining us. And of course, a big thanks to Christopher Alberg from Recorded Future for hosting this week's show. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.